Hi everyone, welcome and thank you for joining us for another Film Roundtable. My name is Maria Prieto and I'm here to introduce today's guests. Before uh, we jump into any of that though, I'm gonna lead us through a moment of silence to honor all 2,456,458 reported worldwide COVID deaths as of today. We're recording this on February 20th, 2021. We'd also like to honor all of our black and brown brothers and sisters, as well as our First Nations brothers and sisters whose lives have been taken by the hands of police brutality and other senseless acts of violence. Thanks everyone. Um, these moments have been a ritual since our first round table uh, this community, this whole film roundtable thing was born in the midst of this first lockdown. And, you know, the whole world just felt like it was in a state of pause. And as the pandemic continues, um, I, you know, I think it's important to do live our lives with awareness and with empathy towards one another. Um, so that being said, today we have a very special roundtable. Uh, a common thread since our first roundtable has been, you know, family life within the industry. And today we're excited to welcome two talented filmmakers who happen to be collaborators and married. So joining us, we have director Karen Tenore, writer and director of Mayday, which premiered this year at the virtual Sundance Film Festival. Uh, the genre-bending feature film features these badass female leads, and it serves both as a complex feminist commentary and a visually striking escapist fantasy. So Karen, welcome to the roundtable. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, thrilled. And joining Karen is her husband and collaborator, cinematographer Sam Levy. Along with lensing Mayday, Sam and Karen have worked together on a couple of short films. And Sam's career behind the lens started when he was an apprentice to cinematographer Harris Savetes, and his talent has not gone unnoticed since. He shot critically acclaimed films like Lady Bird and Frances Ha. Sam, it's lovely to have you. Thanks, Maria. It's wonderful to be here. And lastly, I want to present our guest moderator for today, David Eversoff. David's debut novel, The Danish Girl, was released in 2000 and was subsequently adapted into an Academy Award-winning award feature film. In 2017, the New York Times named The Danish Girl as one of the 25 books that have shaped LGBTQ literature over the past 20 years. Along with his prolific writing career, David worked at Random House for 20 years, working his way up to executive editor. And he's also taught writing at NYU, Princeton, and Columbia. David. Welcome. Thank you, Maria. Thanks for having me. Of course. Before I hand it off to you, I want to quickly thank the rest of the Film Roundtable team, Aaron Weil, Matthew Wolf, Doug Torres, Bradford Young. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for your continued support and remind you guys to subscribe, follow us on Instagram, stay up to date for all of these wonderful discussions. All right, David, it's all you. Thank you. I'm 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 ready to talk. Um, first, I'm just, I'm just gonna say, Karen, I love May Day. Congratulations on what a debut! Uh, yay! Hey. And Sam too for making it look so special. Um, Karen, I thought we'd start by talking about the story of May Day, the story of how you made May Day, and I would love for you 
to kind of walk us through that process from the idea to the writing and et cetera, to, to the film that we got to see at Sundance. Um, where, what is the film's origin story? Uh, Unknown Origin, it was a short that I wrote, a short film that I planned to make over 10 years ago. Now I'm thinking it might even be closer to 15 because it, it was close to the time that Sam and I first went to Croatia, which I'll get to. Um, <laughs> and I don't know where the story came from, um, but it, I knew it had something to do with um, my obsession with water, oceans, sound, and girl characters. And um, I had a very early image of a submarine as something I was fascinated with reading about and how they were considered in war times like this sneaky move, as if like right. there are bad moves and good moves and like the ships were on top of the water and they were like allowed because they were like prominent and visual and that submarines are like sneaky and unfair and I don't know sometimes I sort of feel like image and sound is like that sound is sneakier and undercurrent and mm -hmm. um women are considered sneaky you know it, it all sort of just came together in a little seed and then uh so that's that and I just kept coming back to it over the years um I didn't have the resources to make a feature and it didn't seem quite right as a short either. It seemed like it needed more. But so the seed like sort of came with me from short film to short film, job to job, project to project, and I would come back to it. And then at some point- Can I ask you, what was the first scene that you wrote? Okay, so the first scene that I wrote is not in the film. Okay. <laughs> but it's okay. But I, it, it sort of like encapsulates the film, I think. Um, it was a girl in a rowboat with like the, the, a speaker from a submarine uh, okay. jutting out of the water and she was talking to a young man in the submarine. Wow. And um, yeah, that was the first thing I wrote. And it didn't end up in there that we were out in the ocean. There's a rowboat wouldn't work out there. <laughs> but you know, her talking to a submarine and all of that, that, that was very early. Uh, and so, yeah, I guess that's sort of reversing a man and woman already in the beginning. Anyway, so then kept coming back to it. Um, I wanna say 2017 or something, but I'm terrible with time. But there was a point at which um, Sam asked me to make it into a feature. Um, he wanted to move on to, as he called it, like a more visual storytelling project. Um, and he loved the script and read it along with me for years. And we've made many films together. Um, and he's just like, I wanna make this feature. So I was unsure, I knew it wasn't quite a short, but I didn't know if it was a feature either, but I took a really intense period of time and wrote it out. Um, and Sam was reading drafts all along the way. And, uh, and then it, when it was ready, uh, we got very lucky because our old friend who we all know together, um, Jonah Deason started a production company called Complimentary Colors in LA. And he was in town, he was in New York and uh, he asked what we were working on. Mm. And I said, I have a script. And he read Mayday and he was so excited. He said like, oh, it's 
Dunkirk meets the Wizard of Oz. I, those are my two favorite films right now. So he was like super passionate, super obsessed with it. And then he was on the journey with us. So then it was the three of us. And, you know, it, it came from, came out of that. And uh, before you knew it, we were in Croatia, but. Um, what was it yeah. like to share these pages with a great cinematographer whom you also happen to be married to? Um, and then Sam, I'm gonna ask you the reverse mm -hmm. of that question. It was great. I mean, our relationship and our journey together, we met in our film class in university and like our entire existence together is very much about our love of films and filmmaking. Um, how much we watch together, how much we used to go to <laughs> together, um, like all over the world and thinking about how to make things and how to present things and how to craft things. And it's a conversation we've been in for many, many years and it's been with us from the start. So it never, never felt unnatural. We show each other everything and um, it felt great to have a guide, someone who had done a longer form um, piece and it, it was really, really helpful. It was great. Sam, what, 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 tell us like the first time you read the script, the first time you kind of saw it on the page, what, 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 were some, what was your response? What do you remember about that? Sure, yeah, the, well, sh as Karen said, it was a short first, which I had read. And so we had talked about it maybe existing in that form. But what I recognized right away was I've always had this theory about well, the movies that I like, the cinema that I like, usually involves a character that I would call a, a melancholic person of action, which meaning like maybe it's like, you know, dramatic or there's some sadness in a person's life, but they're active, like they're not a passive person. It's fun to watch people actively engage in doing something. And I recognize this, this, script fit into that realm. So, you know, movies like, you know, Elam Klimov's uh, Come and See, or, you know, Agnes Varda's Cleo from Five to Seven, or even, you know, The Seven Samurai, or, or Bergman's uh, Virgin Spring. Um, the, the protagonist of Mayday, whose name is Anna, um, played by Grace Van Patten, is, that kind of a character, like she has a very difficult life and is a victim of abuse, but she's also, she does things like, you know, ride motorcycles and fights and hand-to-hand -hand combat as a means of coping with her trauma. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I just got really excited about it. And, and yeah, as Karen was saying, you know, I encouraged her to make a feature because I thought well, to make the short will involve a lot of work. Like to really pull it off as a short will be, will be a lot. And I don't know that it, you have to sort of, I mean, we, we knew we wanted it to be a feature, but it didn't seem like you necessarily had to workshop it in that way for it to exist as a longer form. And it, I just thought, you never know these things, but I thought, well, this is something I would really love to see, let alone work on. Yeah. Um, and I could just really see it, or maybe not see it. It's not really my 
mind works, even as a DP reading something. Sometimes you can envision certain things, but it's more just a, a really strong feeling that this material will, will be satisfying, you know, cinematically satisfying. So yeah, I, I could, I had a really strong sense of that, uh, reading the script and, you know, Karen and I have worked on lots of other kinds of things like, you know, her short films, music videos, installations that she's made. She's done lots of interesting work through the years. So, and she is very rigorous, very visually demanding director. She's the most visually demanding director, I think, that I've gotten to work with. And um, so I, I knew I wasn't, I knew it would be a great visual opportunity, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much that that was interesting, just that, you know, the, the story. When you say visually demanding, like give us an example. What does that mean in this context? Well, you know, we made, so we made a short before the thing we made before this movie. It's a movie called Deary uh, that it's uh, probably like a ten minute short, and we were talking about how to do it, and it kind of a really precise idea of how it should look and that you know we ended up building this rig where you know we called it the succubus because it was a really <laughs> difficult this is a really difficult contraption and my friend chris parker who um you know is a designer and kind of an engineer helped me build this thing that was you know it was really just an apparatus that enabled like a canon digital camera to photograph the ground the ground glass of, of my Roloflex uh, medium format film camera. And it just, it was really unwieldy and difficult to sort of design and build. And there were points where I was, you know, I'd check in with Karen like, hey, you know, in order to do this, to do your short, it means um, like it's gonna be difficult to use and it like needs a lot of light. And in her encouraging way, she would always say, well, you know, yeah, like, well, why are we doing this? Like, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it because it'll look, you know, the texture of photographing this ground glass and what it gives you is, is worth it. And most people I work with, like they just don't have that level of like demanding, you know, being demanding um, conceptually and technically, not that other, directors I've worked for aren't, aren't rigorous visually, but just in a, in a different and more specific way. And, and with Mayday, um, there's sequences in the movie where we, we, built, um, we built an apparatus that, you know, like the character looks through binoculars and we used a similar contraption that my friend Kayvon Elami at Camtech helped, helped me, built for me where you know, we, we put an adapter on a camera and photographed through it to create the feeling of looking through binoculars. But it, it, it was an interesting accident where we were thinking of shooting the entire movie through this, like basically through a ground glass to disrupt the, you know, digital quality of, you know, the digital cameras we use just as an exploration. And it was, you know, it was too extreme to do for the entire movie. And it, again, it was, at Karen's urging that uh, we don't just kind of settle for what most cameras or, you know, even film stocks, we were, you know, trying to decide if do we shoot film or not. And 
And, you know, it's a more rigorous conversation than it usually is, a more rigorous ex exploration of how we can, you know, how we can get into the process. Well, so, I love the tools. Yeah. I love the tools. I love the machines that make the movie. So they're like our paintbrushes, right? So you might, like, you might cut a paintbrush to get the paint the right way. So to me, it's like playing with the machines is half the fun and how you make it look how you want or sound how you want it to sound. And um, so to me, that's really very central to making it. The movie's really, it's, it is very poetic, both in ideas in that um, there's a lot of ways to think about this film. Um, is it a story about female friendship? Is it a story about, is it a reimagine or is it a update of a war movie? Is it a feminist fever dream? Is it a fairy tale? Is it just a dream or is it something, is it another world? And all that is there for the viewer to, to think about. Um, this is one reason I really love the film because it gives me a lot to, to think over, but doesn't tell me how to interpret it. It doesn't give me one final answer. And that is what poetry does too. Usually we get very strong images in poetry that have meaning and that resonate because of the way they're put together. But, but um, you know, the poet doesn't tell you this is what this poem is about. Um, we don't, you, that generally, we don't like poems like that. And the, and the movie is the same way. Um, and that's one reason why I think um, I responded so strongly to it. And I think others are as well. And then the two of you through your, through the images of what the movie looks like, and then the storytelling that you're doing, Karen, these really marry and kind of carry that, that forward, this idea, this openness to interpretation and to meaning. I want to ask you a little bit about the character, some of the characters, Karen. Um, mm -hmm. Why don't we start with Anna, um, Grace Van Patten's character. Um, tell us, tell us who she is in your words. The Anna character, I wanted her name to be very simple. Three letters, front and back. Um, because I wanted her to be a simple character in a way. Like, um, it could be anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the person taking the journey and you could sit in that seat if you wanted to. And um, I saw her as I guess when I was writing her, I just saw her as this explorer. And um, in some ways she's a stand-in for me. And you know, um, like has had certain kinds of experiences or thoughts that I have, or, you know, worked in a kitchen, had a certain relationship to violence. Um, but it really, to me, I really thought a lot about Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, how she, how much I love that film and how obsessed I was with that film. And there were these like signifiers in the films. There were the shoes, you know, mm -hmm. there was the witch, there was the storm. Like it was all like, I don't know, it created this obsession around me. And this, I wanted to have a Dorothy that didn't come back after the entire thing was over and have everyone say like, you didn't go anywhere. Nothing happened. You're crazy. I wanted her to like go on a journey and come back transformed and like, just, I sort of like remade the movie I was obsessed with, I think, um, to end differently almost, her, for her to have a better ending. Uh, yeah, that's how I see Grace. That's how I see Anna. 
Yeah, she's she's one of the adjectives that I think of when I think of her is she's just very curious. She knows there's more out there. She yeah. knows there's 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 something out there and there's a way to get there. And that's yeah. that's where the movie begins in some ways. That she she has to she has to get out of the world that she is, which in which is very narrow and of course is not is abusive and and isn't where she knows she can't be happy there. Um, but she's not afraid. Um, and that's one thing that's really appealing about her is that she's never afraid, even though there are a lot of scenes where she, where, where fear would be a sort of a natural um, response, but she's just so curious about who these people she meets are and the world that she's landed in. So why don't you tell us about those, the people that she meets, the, the women, of this land where Anna travels to. Um, yeah. Who are they? So I am so happy that you notice that she doesn't feel fear um, in that way. That's something I love about the character and uh, that she's curious and not afraid. And even when you're casting a film, you get, that's when it all starts to happen, the making the, making the machine. And they want you to send managers to the actors words that describe them. And they tell you what words to use. And they want you to say vulnerable and afraid and delicate. Uh -huh. And I was like, I'm not going to use those words. You know, and <laughs> I don't, so I already getting kickback like in the very beginning when you're just you're just putting things on the page and um, that aren't the script. So anyway, that's satisfying. Um, so the people she meets, um, Marsha to me is this my favorite character in all of these kinds of stories is like the Red Queen. It, it, it's like you go down the rabbit hole and you meet a powerful woman. I don't know why that repeats itself. In Narnia it happens. You meet this kind of queen character. Um, you meet the Wicked Witch. You meet a powerful woman. A girl goes through a portal and you meet the most powerful woman ever and she's villainous, right? Um, which is means complicated, you know, like she's not all good. Like she's like, she's this kind of character that I find fascinating, which is complicated and perhaps difficult. Oh, too powerful or too, too big, like too much. Um, and I love that. And so that's how the Marsha Mia Goth character happened. And then the other two just fell into places to me, like kind of archetypal, you have your like, I love this kind of person that Soko plays. I've had so many of them in my life that they're like really tough girls. Mm -hmm. I always gravitated to those. And um, they love you so much. Like they are this dichotomy, which I find really fascinating. And then um, the character of Beatrice is sort of like a sister. You know, you feel like a sister that you wanna take care of um, who, hasn't been spoiled. And I have a sister like that. She, she has a very like, despite her very, very difficult life, like her, she's got like a wide-eyed wonder. And so, so B was that, and those were, and of course, Juliette Lewis plays June, who is sort of like, I just imagined I wanted someone who would like come and save the day and mm -hmm. um, who was more of a loner and, uh, didn't really like to be with people. I, I, I know people like that as well. And I, I always love that character, that kind of character. You're, um, you're invoking different, different stories and 
films and books, Alice in Wonderland, um, Wizard of Oz. I've also heard you talk about the sirens. Do you want to say something about uh, their their role in, in in your thinking of this story and and how it how it came together? Sure. So the first literature I loved was Greek mythology, the great plays. Didn't you have a dog named Electra when you lived here? Yes, I did have a dog <laughs> named Electra with a K. Okay. So um, <laughs> and I just they were the best. When I finally found those characters, I finally found the women I could, I don't know, just sink my teeth into, thought they were fascinating. So, and then I learned about the siren myth and always just what a crazy myth that is that these half bird, half women mm -hmm. war sailors show their death with their music. I mean, that's just so fascinating to me. So I started, because I use sound as a crucial part of my work, like that image kept coming back to me and um, yeah, I started researching it and it is so fascinating because it's it recedes endlessly. Like it goes back, you can, it goes into um, Egyptian mythology where there were bird women who would take the souls from dead soldiers and, and fly them off. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it, it bends through time over thousands of years and, and different places and different cultures. And of course, we call women with shrill voices harpies, you know, and uh, it seems so modern and today and so ancient too. So I just can't get enough of that one. And it, it was very clear that um, I wanted to make a movie about sirens. <laughs> I was just, I could never get enough of trying to figure out what they are, where they come from, what they mean. You mentioned earlier Croatia. Um, and how the two of you went to Croatia, I guess a long time ago. And then of course you filmed it, film May Day in Croatia. Sam, when you got to Croatia um, for this film, how did, how did the setting um, affect how you were thinking of, of shooting the film? And how did, tell us the story of something that you came across in that landscape, which is really beautiful on the coast of Croatia, um, how it changed, how you, a scene you were going to shoot or a character that you were thinking about? Well, I first went there like 15 years ago to shoot a really interesting documentary about an all-female production of Waiting for Godot with the Red Grave Sisters. Um, right. And Amanda Plummer and a few other actors. And Karen visited me at the end of that. And we took a week and just traveled a little and walked around and uh, it was just a very special time for us to just explore and dream and, and also Karen got to meet some of the team I was working with, both the film team that I was part of the documentary with and also the theater team who was staging a, a theatrical production of Waiting right. for Glow and we were just shooting kind of the making of and uh, this wonderful actor Radis Radis Serbejiak, I'm mispronouncing it, I think, but uh, he's you know, been in a lot of Hollywood movies, and he, but he has this theater company, Ulysses, with, uh, with his wife, Lenka. Anyways, that's not answering your question, but she, Karen, joined me there, and it was just a really special time, being on another planet, or, or feeling like we were living inside of an Andrei Tarkovsky film, like, <laughs> The stalker, and we just 
we just didn't have to say much. We just looked at each other and knew we have to come back here and make something. So when Mayday became a reality, we thought we have to go there. We have to, I think Karen had written it with Croatia in mind. Um, we did scout, uh, we did scout in one other country just as a means of comparing or just sort of verifying that Croatia was where we wanted to be. And it definitely was. Um, and the primary reason Croatia worked best was there, you know, it, it, it's largely set on a beach, a very rocky, very rugged beach um, in Istria, which is kind of a Northern coastal region. The, the town we were in is called Pula. And in Pula, we would walk along this rocky beach and cliffs and kind of look over the, the, the cliff onto the ocean. And it was kind of scary to walk around along these cliffs and we would have nightmares about it. And, and then we'd get excited about these nightmares, knowing that if we could transpose that feeling onto yeah. the screen, that it could be really great provided, you know, we kept everyone safe and that kind of thing. But um, I guess, you know, without trying to give away too much, there's the biggest set piece in the movie is a gigantic submarine, which we actually con constructed both outside. We, we built a submarine on the beach. You know, it's, it's a beached submarine, almost like a gigantic Leviathan. And then we also built the interior on, on a stage, which was just in a local warehouse since there are no stages in the area. And so when we scouted, we, we really had to keep both, you know, like logistics and, you know, poetry, which you beautifully about in mind, like, okay, well, it has to be poetic and evocative. Like the Anna character goes down the portal and into a kind of alternate reality. And it, you have to, it has to be tactile and it, it just has to, it has to work. You have to feel like you're in another realm. And Croatia was great for, especially in these cliffs, and not just the cliffs, but there are these beautiful trees. There's very windy there and the trees are bent by years and years of wind, like the, and they look surreal. They look surreal to us. You know, we live in New York and we've never seen trees that look like that. Mm -hmm. um, and we just immediately like, oh, the cliffs and these bent trees look really odd. Like just looking at these trees just looks like, oh, this to me feels like an alternate reality. But then we had to figure out, okay, but, but we have to construct this submarine because that's where these girls live. And how do we do that? And, you know, um, it's funny. We, we have this joke, like, oh, build a, build a submarine on a rocky beach in Croatia and like you have eight weeks to do it. Like, we'll figure that out. Like the two of us agreeing on and ordering a new sofa, like that's actually truly difficult. But, anyway, um, <laughs> And that submarine, that submarine sits in the, it's partially still in the water, right? So you had to create something that could sit in the sea for, you know. A, that like, was crazy. Uh, yeah. We had such a genius production designer. The Croatians, okay, just say yeah. the Croatians are incredible. So we couldn't have made this film anywhere else. And it's an ambitious film for his budget. I mean, beyond ambitious. Mm -hmm. And they just, there was nothing they said no to. Like they gave above and beyond. So the submarine, I didn't ask for it to be in the water. Um, 
I, I just like logistically thought that's not even possible. Like, and it appeared and he's like, it's going to be in the water. I was like, it's going to be in the water. Like, he's like, yeah, the front's going to be in the water. It has to be in the water. It should be half and half out. Like they're in one world, another world. I was like, okay. And cause he's a wow. genius. But then he, he just got these teams and they were like, when we were like preparing these shirtless men of all ages would be lashing through the waves to make sure the submarine was staying put together. <laughs> and we would be trying to have a conversation and I'd just be watching them like having this like extreme experience behind us. And it was just like this, it was like this, it was this bemoth. Is that how you say that word? It was like this thing that had to be kept together day in and day out. And you could, we would hear the winds at night and just like think oh, yeah. of, dying in the morning it's gonna die it's gonna die out there and they took such good care of it and made something so beautiful and so lovingly and then they made the inside like really special for the actresses um mm -hmm. filled with art and and things that they would have and like the perfect bunk beds and you know just and to imagine a radio room that doesn't exist and i had pictures of it that i'd put together of different inspirations but to have someone build it and they're there, like a, a screen that is made of light. I mean, uh, we were so lucky and it really was the best place to go because they were so invigorated by the challenge of making something outlandish. That's yeah. amazing. Um, you mentioned the actresses. I'm curious, I wanna go back to something that you were talking about a little bit earlier when you were sending the script out and I guess agents or managers would cue you of which, which adjectives to use, vulnerable, Etc. And and you that that did not interest you. So, but I'm I'm curious what your cast did say to you when they read the script. How what you know what 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 did it, what what was their response to these characters and and also just the vision of the film, the world that you're creating, and the ideas because it's you're you're myth making here. You are you are telling a story about a a specific character, Anna, but you're also creating myth here and, and playing with myth. And I'd love to like hear what the what the what your cast said to you. Sure, it was amazing what they said to me. Um, and I, so they each came to me in a very different way, but um, Mia was the first to come in through my computer pre-pandemic. So, you know, it was Skype, but she was in LA and mm -hmm. uh, she just leapt out the script felt like an awakening to her. She had read it. She wanted the part of Marsha. She just loved it and felt like it was her in this way that was so special. And the way that she described it as like an awakening was really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And um, and for those uh, who don't know who you're talking about, you're talking about Mia Goth. Oh yeah, Mia Mia Goth. And uh, Marcia. who plays Marsha, sorry, yeah. and. Um, Grace came to it with her physicality in the room and just did like the shooting scene and she's such a magnificent actress and her physical presence is so interesting. And then we talked and like her grandfather owned a Harley Davidson store and she used to watch her mom and her three sisters ride around on motorcycles. So she's like four women on motorcycles and she loves the ocean and she surfs. And so like she had this elemental connection to the machines and to the water. Uh, Havana said that the reading the script healed her. She read it twice in a row. It, it like it transformed her. 
And Soko was just so amazing. I, she just like clicked on her phone and I could see her and she's like, so who are these sirens? <laughs> she, just, she like immediately understood what the film was and she wanted to know exactly who everyone was. And she's, she's very fantastic in that she just asks everything she wants to know and she asks for what she wants. And I've never seen a woman like that, much less a man, like who just never even hesitates. And she just wanted to know everything. And I was like, oh, that's good. You know, she, that's how Gert is. And so, yeah, that's how they presented. And Juliet was hilarious. I sent her the script. She got on her phone and she was wrapping up a TV show. She's in her trailer and she just felt really wild about it. And she has this wild intellectual energy and, and sprightliness. And um, she was talking about how much she loved the way the characters talk, the way they speak. And that seemed to be what made her really interested in coming. Can you tell us about, so yeah, you've made short films, you've done um, different kind of art and visual art, uh, but your first feature is a big deal. It's like, I'd love to hear about like the first day on set of your first feature. Okay, so the first day we went down to this incredibly rocky beach where the pilot comes out of the water, where they first get there. And that's the first thing that happens and he walks out of the water. So it was like, you know, Sam is always saying like, can't you ever write something simple? Like <laughs> he has to walk out of the sea, you know? So um, we had to have him walk out of the sea and the rocks were really sharp and it was hard to move around on them. And the sun was strong and the tide was not at the right place at all right moments, but that's what's so fun for me it's like and everyone was so game and Francesco this young boy he's like a beautiful boy like coming out of the sea and having so much fun doing it um and it was great it was great it was it was a really hard day and we had a lot of very hard days they everyone had to really do unusual things and um but that's what was incredible. You know, that's what was incredible about it. it was, everything was a surprise. Almost, you know, sometimes too much of a surprise. Like the, how much noise the water coming off of his costume made. You know, we were constantly encountering these challenges due to the fact that it was an unusual story and told in an unusual way. And but that was the fun of it. That was what made it. That's what makes you want to go back and do more. I remember the sound mixer. Uh, wonderful guy named Mattia. We were so worried about the actors walking on rocks and making too much noise and that being over their dialogue. And everyone recommended this guy Mattia because they're like, well, he just did a movie where the whole cast is essentially naked or you know, they're wearing bathing suits most of the time and he found a way to wire them where you couldn't see the wires. <laughs> and he was just, and they were walking on rocky beaches and also there's nowhere to hide their microphones. It, it was, but yeah, there was a scene where Francesco comes out of the water and it, yeah, he's wearing a full military uniform with a parachute and it was dripping <laughs> like crazy. Of course, we'd never, we didn't have that. that might be an issue. <laughs> we had to have a whole conversation about, it was like, well, it just sounds weird, but also it is happening. Like he just came out of the water and it's dripping. So it makes sense, but it was funny conversation for the first day. Yeah, that was the first thing that happened. 
he walks out of the ocean. So uh, that was day one, day one down. I remember <laughs> like, we're like 38 to go. <laughs> <laughs> you have, um, you have like some amazing collaborators on this, on this film, um, starting with your DP, but also your, um, let's look, can we talk about the music? Um, yeah. the, the score is really beautiful. You have a song. Um, so, so Colin Stetson wrote, did, wrote your score. Colin how Stetson. Did you two, yeah. How did you two come to, how did he come to the film? He came to the film. He was on our list for a long time. My editor, as we were at, it's sort of this weird thing that I wouldn't do again, where you, in a standard way of making a feature film, you kind of went towards, you get the end of your editing process. That's mm -hmm. when you traditionally start to say like, who's gonna compose this music? I would never do that again. I would know who the composer was from the time I was writing wow. um, and talk to them because it's not something you add on at the end. It's like completely integral to the thing. But luckily Colin, we knew about him. My editor, Nick was pretty obsessed with him and he really liked how he used his instrument the bass saxophone in this incredible way like he would use this kind of breathing technique through a, like to make it make these certain strange noises and he would use the keys as percussion so he could do like a thousand things on the thing at once like he experimented with his machines like which is what I love to do and he kept bringing up his name and then when it came time to pick um Colin just wanted to do it and he just sort of announced, it's kind of how people came to this project. They just sort of announced that they wanted to do it. And he wanted to do it. And um, like I was saying, there's certain language that people were expecting for how the characters were. There was a certain kind of music. There was an expectation from a lot of composers that this was a delicate story, a small story. They would use words like small and little and sweet and girls and friendship. And those are all things. Um, but uh, Colin was like, this is gonna sound like the forest, right? Like, this is gonna sound like metal and water. And I was like, yes, these are the elements. These girls are in the elements and they have emotions which can be very sweet or whatever. That's certainly part of the palette of the sound, but he understood that it should even sound cosmic. You know, it should even, it should sound big. And these characters were, tr were trying to make them big and full. And so he didn't, he was completely right for that. And then Caroline, who did, um, Caroline Shaw, who did the song, um, which represents all the girls along the shore that you don't see their voices, um, is just like the most extraordinary artist. I mean, I would tell anyone to explore her work. Um, I think she's the youngest composer ever to win the Pulitzer. Yeah. And you, and she's the most fun person in the world. And she would come in and she wrote an initial song for it. And then, and she, she does a lot of vo vocal work. So it's all her voice. And then, you know, you give some notes and I said, um, it's, it's so beautiful, Caroline, but it's, it's incredibly sad and mournful. And at this moment in the film, it's actually like a party. It's like, think of it as a party, even though it's the saddest part of the movie. And she said, oh, that's what I love about this movie because I feel like I'm inside grief and joy at the same time, simultaneously. Yep. And she's like, and that's where I want to work. So then she came back, she sent, she emailed it to me and she's like, okay, here it is. It's a party with Kanye West, who she's worked with, uh, Laurie Anderson, who's mm. 
favorite of mine. Um, Mahler and the Anderson sisters. <laughs> and I remember the editor and my assistant editor, Sam and I sat in my studio, all masked, separated, and we played it on the big speakers and our eyes were so wide. And that version is in the film. It, we didn't touch a note. It was so special. Most incredible thing I ever got on an email. That's amazing. Um, on the subject of music, there is a, there is a dance number in the in the film, um, where this a group of uh, male soldiers break out into dance set to Liberace's "Love Is Blue." Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about that scene? I have a couple questions of like, at what point did that scene come to you? And also, um, Sam, I want to hear about filming that scene, shooting that scene, and then. Um, I'm curious if anyone ever tried to convince you to cut it out, Karen. Those are such good questions. I mean, that last one in particular. Um, I'm glad you kept it. I'll try and, uh, yeah. Okay, so where did it come from? Uh, I, Sam and I have this saying that a friend said to us once, a playwright we know. He said, you can't beat singing and dancing. Like, <laughs> whenever we see things, we're like, no, you can't. You actually can't. You can't beat it. You can never beat it. It can never be that magical or better. Um, so I gravitate towards that and I have a dance background. And so right. choreography and movement are things I'm very interested in. And at this point in the movie, um, I didn't want to show carnage. I don't, I'm not interested in showing violence in a direct way very much. Um, and um, there were these souls that were dying and and I thought like at that point maybe her mind would like break or something like or it would become something completely different right. and so since they're in military uniforms I've always thought military gestures and marching and all that is a lot of synchronized dance really it's just synchronized right. dance and so I don't know I put those together something about the synchronicity of soldiers and the dance and then the Liberace, it actually came from my editor. It was in there as Temp. It was a song he loved. And we never were able to beat it. I mean, I, it just, and, and then when Colin did the music, it somehow worked, it all worked together. And then, you know, thank God Sam was there to shoot it because poor boys were like falling in ditches of manure and like, there was like a farm in the way and like it was a very hard shoot and no one ever I thought the first thing people would say was take it out and it was everybody's favorite scene oh good yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah we, had, we had mapped out before we ever left for Croatia we we mapped out that scene we mapped out all the scenes and you know made a shot list and diagrammed everything and then so we had a plan for how we might shoot it just to get our thoughts organized and then um Karen hired a, a choreographer Croatian choreographer who lived in Zagreb and a lot, all those boys were you know some of them were dancers in her company and some were just friends of friends and then she created the choreography while we were there so our plan was good for Karen and I to have a shorthand which it always it always is. But then when we finally saw the, the real choreography, we had to adjust both 
just for the choreography and the movements, but also for, for the landscape. As she was saying, we staged this dance number in a big field and it's in this alternate reality where there isn't really civilization or the things like houses and, and there's a gigantic barn on part of this field. When we sat, it was like, okay, well, we, we shoot everywhere except there. It's a normal kind of a thing to do in a movie. Like, we just need to avoid what you see over there. So there's, I mean, there's all these kind of, I don't know how interesting they are. Pr production stories about that, where it's like, okay, this like 40 degrees in our field of view has to be avoided. And so maybe like park all the trucks within that 40 degrees, cause we can't see over there anyways. And then the, the morning of like that proved difficult cause we were on protected land and you know, it increased to like, okay, well it's more like 90 degrees that you can't see. Cause like all the vehicles have to be there, whatever, you know, all like commonplace stuff for shooting. Um, but what was interesting was um, just because of the way production goes sometimes, the only time we really got to see the full company of dancers doing the choreography with Grace Van Patten, who had to interact with them, was really the night before. The night before we shot it, we all went, we were in the hotel, in a hotel conference room watching it. So again, like we saw it and got inculcated into the movements, which was great and very fun and exciting. And also it was like, we'll see how it works tomorrow in this field um, with, you know, yeah, it was like a grassy field with these kind of like grassy potholes. And one of the main dancers like totally turned his ankle at one point. And then so we had to adjust. He still was able to participate, but not be as, you know, athletic. And it was, it was interesting. And then we all sort of knew like, we just need to capture this choreography as much as we can until the sun goes down and then we have to stop and, and not come back ever. Um. <laughs> that's, the, that's the challenge of filmmaking. Uh, always racing against time. And the, another big thing about this, we're doing something ambitious like a dance number, but in this insane terrain, so you'd think a field would be forgiving, but it's not. And we didn't have the kind of budget of like the landscaping, you know, of the roads and the plants and all of that. So we just were really in it. We're in nature uh, fully and all of that, the problems that that presents and, and it presented a lot of problems for the dance. So being able to pull it off was a relief and um, really a team effort. <laughs> You're working um, together on a documentary, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us, tell us a little about that. Uh, it's also a family affair. It's called The Last People, and it's based on the August Saunders book of portraits. Um, it's this beautiful book of uh, Americans. I believe it's Americans, and it's all different kinds of people, and it's like this big, and it starts with aristocrats and then it's like wealthy people and then it's like it goes through the strata of class and race and at the very end of the book it's the chapter of the last people and it's developmentally disabled people um adults and children and um my sister who's older than me um is uh, in that category special needs and she lived with us while sam was actually for a lot of the time that you were doing like 
Frances Ha and that, that group of movies. And she lived with us and we became very close at that time. We were always close, but she had never lived with us. And then we became like a really tight knit family. And then we found this place for her to live two hours north of us, which is the most magical place I've ever seen. And they have these villages all over the world. So it's this global village of young people and old people, half are special needs, half are not. And they live together in a Steiner philosophy um, of living and educating and working. And it's a biodynamic farm. And it's, it's hard to explain. It takes a long time to even understand what it is. So Sam and I have started shooting it's so much fun to shoot these people. They either could not care less that you're there or it's like, I mean, they could not care less, you know, or they're like, what, so am I a movie star now? Like, you know, they're <laughs> very like, uh, it's like the funnest project. So um, we're so happy. So it's called Camp Hill Village. And my sister's name is Trish. We call her sister Trish. And uh, we're shooting that movie uh, about them and, and for people to sort, I love taking people there. And so mm -hmm. it's also about like introducing these people to the world in a way that they're not usually, they're, they're usually hidden away, you know, and yeah. we That's would like to. Go ahead. I know, Sam, were you gonna say something? Sorry, I'm going on and on. <laughs> it's really fun to watch Sam shoot with them. Uh, Oh yeah. Um, Sam is having, has the camera and it's really fun to watch. Like I shoot yeah. Sam shooting them. <laughs> it's really fun. <laughs> yeah, th there's a day where there, it's, it's a farm. So there's different jobs that everyone who lives there has. There's a lot of farm jobs like, you know, stacking hay or, you know, carpentry work, fixing barn doors and things like that. And there was a day where I filmed a guy, a, a developmentally disabled guy who lives there, uh, just moving hay. And I just filmed him for maybe 30 minutes or something. And it just, yeah, he didn't care at all. Never made any comments. And then there's a woman um, in one of those electric uh, wheelchairs. Paula. What's her name again? Paula. Yeah, Paula. <laughs> And she, her job is to deliver bread all around the village. So we were filming her sort of from our car, like using the car as a dolly and trying to keep up with her. She goes really fast in this motorized <laughs> chair. And then um, at lunch that day, she was like, demanded that we show her the footage. <laughs> and we showed it to her. She was like, I'm famous. I'm a movie star now, which some people have a reaction. And very different reaction. Great. That's great. I can't wait to see that. That sounds like a really beautiful film. Um, I want to do uh, a little bit of lightning round questions. Um, first film you ever saw in a theater? You go first. Does public library count? Because it was projected. Theater. Oh, it was a mouse movie. It was animated. I started screaming and crying. I had to leave. Okay. Mine was Superman, and I, yeah, I, I was terrified, and I had to leave. Oh my god! I just learned that about you, Sam. I never knew that. My grand, I had to leave, and I remember my grandparents. I, my grandparents commissioned an usher to talk to me, and the usher was like, "It's all fine. He's gonna save the world. Like, you should go back in. Nothing bad's gonna happen." I was like, "That was terrifying." I just. I'm 
scared too. I am so scared I left. I just, that's so interesting. I never knew that. Okay, next <laughs> mine question. Was, my, mine was um, Escape from Witch Mountain with the really? flying RV. Oh. Did you love it? Did you yeah. scream leave? Okay. No, I didn't, I didn't leave. I remember just loving the flying camper um, and yeah. of course wanting one. Um, of course. Uh, last movie you saw in a movie theater. Oh. I saw, uh, ten, I saw Tenet in a, it was like a social distance, okay. got their temperatures taken. You had to get tested in a like sort of private screening. Okay. I don't know nice. if that's much, but it was in a theater. That's a hard one. I think it was Play It As It Lays, which is one of my favorite movies. And when it was playing at Metrograph, I saw like every screening because it's it's not that easy to see. And You're so that, lucky. I've never seen cool. that projected. <gasps> you, David. Uh, I saw Harriet. Um, oh, wow. Uh, with Cynthia Rivo. That must have been yeah. right before oh, wow. COVID shut down. Yeah, just before. I think I was trying to like see everything before, before the Oscars. And that was maybe that, yeah. I think that's the last one. Um, let's see, uh, your favorite movie theater? Metrograph. There you go. Oh, man. Well, I love Metrograph too. Let me say something different. Okay, the, um, the, <gasps> Coolidge, oh, the Coolidge Corner Cinema in, in Boston. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I grew up in um, Pasadena and the, the Rialto was still um, open mm -hmm. in, in uh, South Pasadena. Um, so I would say that just, but it's sadly not open. Um, the movie you've watched the most times? The Red Shoes. Oh man, I've seen The Red Shoes many times too. I'll just say something different, probably Fat City, director John Hughes. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 boxing. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, David? Um, probably a room with a view. Oh, uh, I love that. Ivory. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful movie. That's yeah. such a good one. It's a great love story. Um, classic movie you've never seen. Ooh, I know mine. I know Sam's. It's, I, I can't believe I'm going to admit this on the film round table, but I've never seen The Sound of Music all the way through. Oh, okay. Uh, that one's hard for me. I think I keep trying to watch The Seventh Samurai and I always fail. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like the most important movie. It's I like, love his movies, but I just, I, I just fail. I, just, I, it's like, I think it's sort of, it's really designed for like little boys or I don't know, maybe that's like not the right thing to say, but it's, it's like very, it's such a macho, it's kind of like a very macho kind of a movie. Mm. I don't know. Maybe that's why. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it either. So I will I will take that answer as well. <laughs> um, the film that only you obsess over. Only okay. me. Well, in the sense that it's like it's your it's one of your faves, and the rest of the world hasn't quite put put that um, sneaker. Sneakers. It stars Sydney Poitier, River Phoenix. Uh, Sam, help me out. Uh, uh, David Strathern. Um, the guy who runs Sundance. 
Sydney Poitier. Yeah. Um, it is like the best cast. It's, it's a star-studded yeah. cast. Aaron loves a team work movie. Right. <laughs> Most people do, but she really does. And I'm going to give a more recent example. I loved The Prom, the, uh, <laughs> the movie with uh, Meryl Streep and James Corden. And I know that I, I think there's a lot of people that do. It got, it got pretty scathing reviews. And I've talked to some friends who felt similarly. We, we watched it. We both watched it. And I thought it was great. I love that movie. I don't know. Yeah, it brought me a lot of joy too. Um, it, um, for me, oh, this is, a, of course, I'm better at asking questions and answering. Um, this, is, this is not quite the right answer for this category, but, but a movie that I, that is at the top of my, of my list of favorite films that maybe isn't on a lot of those lists is Silkwood. Um, I love that movie so much. Of course, it 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 is a it is an acclaimed movie, of course, and obviously, lots of acclaimed people in it, um, made by acclaimed filmmakers. But it's a movie I think of a lot. Oh, I love that. And, but so that's like your movie that you think is of your movie that you obsess over that other people don't so much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. It's not highly discussed these days. I think people are aware of it. They're not unaware of it, but it's just not part of a bigger discourse. Yeah. Uh, one more of these. Um, the film, this, this, might be, this might be repetitive, but the film that you feel like gets you, that like if somebody sees that film, they get who you are. Wow, what a good question. Okay. Oh, you go. go ahead, Karen. <laughs> I think the red shoes. Okay. Hmm. Okay, mine is not as maybe lofty. Um, and it's embarrassing. I actually, I think it's called School Ties, the movie where Brendan Fraser plays a Jewish guy at a boarding school. Um, and it's like highly anti-Semitic. And, um, uh, you know, I, I grew up with an Israeli father and you know taught violin lessons that worked really hard to send me to private school and growing up in Boston in the 80s right, right. there was a lot of anti-semitism especially if they met my dad who whose name was you know Amnon a very like common Israeli name but not common name here and it was anyways I, I can't believe I just gave that as an answer but when I watch it it's like it, it it, uh, it's about a Jewish guy in a private school who's really trying to assimilate something my Israeli father always was like really trying to get me to do. And then they find, sort of find him out and the repercussions that come from it can relate to. The fun also of being a movie making couple is that we obsess over the same films too. So like, mm -hmm. I would say we're both obsessed in particular right now with puberty blues and have been over for several like decades. Like, do you know that movie, David? I don't. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like puberty blues, which I highly recommend everyone watching, is sort of like, like the breakfast club for Australian kids growing up in the 80s. And oh, it's okay. starting to become known over here and it was remade into a TV show, also Australian. And it's so good. It's so like racy, so kind of, you know, it's like a YA 
movie. And it's like highly, the sort of lives of the people who appeared in it are highly documented because it was such a massive hit in Australia. And, and oh, wow. um, yeah. You see this. <laughs> but that, that's true. I've probably, I mean, we've watched the Red Shoes together so many times. I can't even, how many We times? know every line. We can say the whole movie. Do you have movies like that, David, where you can just say the whole line? Like, I mean, I can speak the whole film. We know everything. Um, maybe, maybe A Room with a View. I, I mean, I, I couldn't speak every line, but I know every scene. I know, I know the, like what that, that pond looks like where those guys are running around naked chasing each other and yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis comes, you know, is running around and there's a foxglove a flower that's like in the scene. I, I know it. I know it all because I oh I watched that as a as a kid and I've watched it since. And it's sort of like there's a tone to that movie that I respond to because it's so sincere and so beautiful, but it's also winking and having fun. And um, Maggie Smith is hilarious, and Judy Dench is in it, and they're biting and funny and it's yeah it, it has it, it speaks to to me and and always has mm. yeah do movies influence your writing do you think ever um they must um but how I, I, how i can't exactly say um i would say i yeah that's a good question i'm sorry i don't really have a a formed answer on it. There no answer? Um, the question that I do get is, do I think about um, my books being adapted? Do I think about that when I'm writing? And to me, I can't even, I, I can't even imagine. That seems like, that just seems like a really, um, like that, that could really sink a project to think that way. Um, it never, you know, it just never would occur to me to think beyond the task of trying to get it down on the page it's just hard enough to get it down on the page um so i don't think i don't think of like how it might look on the screen i certainly didn't with danish girl um i'm finishing a book now and um somebody asked me that and i i i, I kind of went blank i was like i have no idea if this is adaptable almost like you tell me and i've adapted books but I, but but my own while I'm still writing it, I I I just can't answer that. Um, yeah, yeah, I relate to that. Just do getting you, it done is, I mean. Do you still prefer? I know when when we lived in the same building, you used to say you, you prefer to write really early in the morning and you do your own. Is that still true? Do you still write at five in the morning? I do. Yeah, I'm a five a.m. or um, that's my time. I I wake up fairly naturally at that time, and um, yeah, that's. I remember, I remember asking you that so many years ago and you said, it's the time when I'm just close to dreaming. Mm -hmm. I'm still so close to dreaming. And I took that advice to heart. I do not get up at 5 a.m. But <laughs> I, when I'm writing, I can't talk to anyone be between the time that I'm asleep and I'm writing. Cause I thought of you saying that I wanted to be really close to dreaming. Mm, when yeah. yeah, I feel like it's important to kind of not let the world an email and the news come into my head until I've done the day's work. Um, I heard once heard Amy Tan talk about this. She does has the same routine of not not entering the world until until she's finished with her fictional world. And she said the only 
conversation she wants to have until she's done with her writing, I'm paraphrasing here, is with her dog. And, um, <laughs> which I also completely get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you, Karen. So, okay, so you're, you emulate David's model there. But if you're writing a screenplay, is it, or this is like a half-formed thought of a question, but it, are you sort of like in final drafts in the morning and sort of like doing construction or is it more just like, you know, when you did your first draft of uh, Mayday, it wasn't like in script form, you just sort of like wrote yeah. things out. Yeah, the things come to me and I jot them down and then accumulate them and that doesn't have to be done at any particular time. Because sometimes things will come to me during the day, I'll see something and I'll have to jot it down when I get home or something. But the actual process of writing out dialogue and, and the technical scene by scene, the way I need to do that before I've said a word or heard a word, can't hear any, I, I need it to be, yeah, no world coming in mm. sleep and awake. That part can't have Wait, any. Now, now I have a question for you, David. It's, it's like a Danish girl question. So, when you, when Danish Girl was being made into a film and you were, uh, I don't know if you ever visited the set or if you, I assume you were like privy to just all the different phases of it being made into a movie. Did you find yourself um, sort of like in the different world of film production? Did you find yourself being like, God, this seems really great. I sort of want more of this in my life where you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to get back to it writing 5 a.m. in the quiet. How do these people collaborate? All these people are crazy. No, I no, I didn't. I never thought all these people were crazy. Um, I, uh, the Danish Girl was the second of my books that had been adapted. I had, had I wrote a book called The 19th Wife, which was right. into, a, into a television movie. And that was, uh, that was kind of a more typical experience where, um, I didn't have so much involvement and um, and the, the, the I, I just wasn't close to that film uh, yeah. or that TV film and but I'm grateful for it because it brought a lot of readers to me and a mm. lot of people I mean a lot of people said I've never heard of you until I saw your mm. I saw the movie on Lifetime and then I bought your book so that 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 is important for book writers and and so I'd been through that experience and then the Danish girl was made and Gail Mutrix, the producer of The Danish Girl, she was, she was the force behind that. She optioned the book when it first came out. She was pushing that boulder for 15 years. She got it to Tom Hooper. Um, and, and so I really trusted her. I really trusted her. She's a wonderful, wonderful producer and person. And I, because I'm a book editor as well, I work with a, obviously a lot of writers and I know the, I know how you have to give creative people space. You have, you can't hover, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't start putting your fingers in the wrong places because, mm -hmm. you know, you're, as an editor, I feel like I'm there to, to respond and to be a, a, a support and to read closely, but not to reimagine vision or to, or to muck around. I'm very cautious about that as a book editor because creativity is, can be so fragile and mm -hmm. the alchemy of a book or a movie is so 
unique and you throw in one wrong ingredient at the wrong time and it, and it can just collapse. So um, I knew that with Gail, I really trusted her and I just, she kept me in the loop on what was happening, but I also felt like there's no way that she can bring the, the really great artists onto this film if there's a book author who's like hovering and, you know, and, and I, so it wasn't really interesting to me, but I, to, to, to try to do that. But I did visit the film and I loved the set and I loved it. Mm. Um, I loved seeing how it's made and, and, and the collaboration I was really, that's, that's the thing that I responded to the most was that writing a book is a very isolating and isolated mm -hmm. experience. Um, it's you and yourself for a good few years and then your editor, and that's kind of it. It's, it's very small and your agent. Um, and then, and that's kind of it. Um, maybe a few readers, but the collaboration on set really appealed to me. Just this idea of, of being with a bunch of smart, creative people and ideas coming out of that. I, I saw that, uh, I've seen that, and that was a part of, um, of filmmaking that I sort of kind of mi like miss when I'm, when I'm locked up with finishing a book as I am right now. But I get it a bit as an editor and, and working to help writers finish, not, work, working to help writers in various capacities and to publish their books. So I like, I like that collaboration a lot. I, none of it seems crazy to me. Um, the timeframes obviously are, can be kind of astonishing. The fact that it can take 15 years to make a movie is remarkable, but you know, Gail Mutrix was, is a remarkable person who never gave up. And I think a lot of other people would have. <laughs> yeah, I, you have to really stick with this. It's not, yeah. it's not for yeah. everyone, it's not an easy glide. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's, yeah. it's very surprising to the average person who doesn't have exposure, what all goes into a, a movie. And it's sort of, I think most people who maybe don't think about it, might think making a movie is somewhat like watching a movie, which <laughs> is not. <laughs> like everything is usually extremely deliberate. Like if you see something, you have to think about it and usually you, to, you know, pay for it or, or create it or, yeah. It's interesting, I, I, we have a friend who's a painter um, at Connors and when I, I went to a studio one time after wrapping a, a particularly hard shoot and he was, you know, working away and doing his thing, which he's great at. And I thought, oh, that seems really great. And we would talk about it and say, he would say, I don't understand how you can be with all these people and collaborate, it seems so complicated. Um, and what he does seems similarly complicated and what you do, yeah. I did, I once heard um, Joyce Carlos say something about her process, which is that compared it to filmmaking and that she said, you know, she said in some ways she's a bit like a director because, or a filmmaker in that a, a director doesn't, this is what she said, a director doesn't just take the cap off the lens and start filming. There's all sorts of, Preparation. There's a script that's written. There's the the planning and the casting, etc. And she said, as a novelist, there's all sorts of preparation that she does and, and that we do um, before we're really kind of writing the draft. 
We do a lot of thinking, planning. Sometimes we do outlining. Uh, we test voices. We test scenes. Like we, there's all this work that goes that is is preparing to write. You know, a draft that's going to look similar to the draft that will be read. And and um, and it's rare that you just kind of sit down and the first sentence comes and then that's going to just lead you to the end of, to the to the final sentence. That does happen. And those are those books are miracles. Um, but a lot of that, that is atypical to the process. Mm. Um, I think we should, we should, we should wrap up. Karen, I'm going to ask you one more question about Mayday and then, and then we should say goodbye. Um, you once said you wrote Mayday, uh, for the girls that didn't make it. Um, can you, can you unpack that for us? What does that mean? So I was somewhere in the middle of writing out uh, like a fifth, somewhere between the fifth and 10th draft of the feature. And I was writing out, I guess it was the character of B. And um, I just thought about all these women, young women, girls I've known throughout the years um, who have encountered violence. And I do know some who've taken their own lives. And, um, and I read about women like that and girls like that. And I fear for so many, so many young lives and older lives. I, I, I just, and I got very emotional because I was right. It was at the point in the film where I was really figuring out who these girls really, really were and, and what I felt about them. And, and um, I just remember thinking like I would do anything to get them back, you know, and, um, anything <laughs> and, and the movie does for me in, in some way it gets them back and I, I hope it's like the reason I say it's like for them is because I want them to have something better like I want them to have something beautiful about them um so yeah it's it's for them that's wonderful you gave them something really special and you gave us something really special um Karen Tenori, thank you very much. Congratulations on your debut, May Day. Sam Levy, thank you very much. Congratulations on shooting a, a wonderful film and to both of you on, on this collaboration. Uh, I'm David Dimitrov. We love you. <laughs> and uh, I wanna thank Film Roundtable for having us, letting yes. us squeeze right in here to have a chat. Um, thank you, Maria. Roundtable. Thank Thanks to everybody at Film Roundtable and thank you for listening. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. See Bye. you soon. Bye.